Excellent. Right, good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Jenny, and I'm on staff here. Um, and this morning, we're starting a new sermon series that will take us up to Easter, entitled Passion Week, where we're going to take our time to look in detail at the last week of Jesus' life that led to his death and resurrection. Did you know that over 30% of the four Gospels is entirely about this one week? In fact, we have four Gospels, as I'm sure you all know, and before this week, they don't, they don't all talk about the same thing very often. They pretty much all mention Jesus' baptism. They don't all have his birth, but they mention his baptism and starting his ministry. And then the only miracle they all have is the feeding of the 5,000. And of course, each gospel writer looks at different, they focus on different aspects of Jesus' three-year ministry. But when it comes to this point, they all come together. And that just gives us an indication of how critical and crucial this part is. So, eight out of 28 chapters in Matthew are looking at the last week of Jesus' life. Six out of 16 in Mark. Five out of 24 in Luke. And eight out of 21 in John. So it's quite a big portion of the, the New Testament, really, that is covering this one week. So with that much of the Gospels dedicated to this one week, it can be a shame to try and cover it all in the real Palm Sunday, uh, which is uh, the 5th of April through to Easter Sunday. A lot of times we just pack it in in that week. But we really felt that this time it would be great to just take our time and look one day at a time over the next few weeks. So it's Palm Sunday, not Palm Sunday. I saw the Gateway social media post this week, um, and really... What I want to do is, as we look at Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem, at the start of that road that we know leads to the cross, it's often titled in our Bibles, a triumphal entry. It's an incredible moment in the ministry of Jesus, and in history itself, of drama and great anticipation. So I want to bring it to, to life afresh this morning, and focus on all the different things that are happening. I plan to look first at the moment in time, the message of his entry into Jerusalem, both visual and verbal, and finally, the man himself. What exactly is going on here, and what can we learn about God through it? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all we can learn from it. And we thank you that when it comes to these events of the last week of Jesus' life, we have four different gospel accounts we thank you for all the richness there is there that we can take. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, Lord God. We want to be inspired by you. Amen. So I could have chosen four different versions of this, but I've gone for Luke because it's the longer one. So we're just going to read through the whole passage uh, just to get a sense. I know it's familiar, but let's just uh, imagine we're reading it again, uh, you know, afresh. So Jesus has just told the parable in Luke of the ten talents or the ten minas. So it starts saying in Luke chapter 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, that is the parable, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, tell him, the Lord needs it. 
Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So first of all, let's look at the moment in time. Everything has been moving towards this climax and the different gospel writers have been carrying us forward to this moment. For example, Luke, look earlier in Luke chapter 19, uh, we see Jesus invite himself to Zacchaeus' house uh, for tea. And then when he starts his parable about the ten meaners, he says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. There's a real anticipation there. Something was going to happen in Jerusalem. Jesus has been trying to prepare his disciples for what's going to happen many times across the four Gospels. Uh, One example, um, Luke chapter 18 in verse 31, he says, um, he took the twelve aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be turned over to the Gentiles, they will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. He hasn't been vague. He's been pretty, you know, he's set out what's going to happen. But as we know, the disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand what was about to happen. But they knew something was, because it had been mentioned. So there's such a sense of anticipation. Of course, what a lonely place for Jesus to be in the midst of this huge moment coming that even those closest to him didn't understand what was going to happen. Jerusalem is under Roman power. Now, we often think about the Romans as uh, bringing lots of great things uh, to our our world, I guess. Uh, When my son Jonathan was studying the Romans in uh, in school a couple of years ago, one of his homeworks was to create a song um, about what the Romans had done. So we worked together on our own version of YMCA, which was VMCX. Roman numerals, um, and brought out all the amazing things that the Romans, of course, have done. They've brought us our towns, like our own lovely city of York, the roads, the plumbing, the sanitation, the currency, we could go on. But let's not forget what it was like for those who were actually under Roman dominion. They were the absolute superpower of the day. But Roman imperialism placed heavy human and financial burdens on its conquered provinces. The Roman historian Tacitus says, the Romans rob, they slaughter, they plunder, and they call it empire. Where they make it a wasteland, 
They call it peace. So Imperial Rome generated hatred and contempt from many of its subjects. Meanwhile, the Romans distrusted associations and crowds and gatherings because it made them a bit nervous about what might be going on. So the Passover, this is the time when Jesus is coming up in Jerusalem, a few days before the Passover, an incredibly significant moment in time for so many reasons. It's a Jewish festival, of course, where the events of the Exodus are remembered. The events of God's rescue of his people from the superpower of the day. The rumor goes, could it happen again? From the Romans. So there's a real sense of nationalism going on. And this is why Pontius Pilate was in town, because he would usually be in Caesarea, much happier there, but he was in Jerusalem because the Romans distrusted these crowds, these associations, and the Passover was a key time where nationalism was rife. So they were there to ensure law and order prevailed and national emotions were kept in check. The normal population of Jerusalem, general estimate was maybe around 30,000, but the Passover was a time when Jews from all over were coming onto Jerusalem, were coming to gather to the temple for this festival. So there may have been as many as 150,000 people descending on the city. You can see why the Romans might feel a little bit nervous. Um, so this, then, is the moment that God has chosen for his son to take center stage, to bring about his purposes for our true Passover lamb to take the center place. There were growing tensions. It's interesting, in uh, John chapter 11, verses 55 to 57, it says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so they might arrest him. Ever since Jesus has, has um, raised Lazarus from the dead, there's just this stepping up of tension, and the Romans and the uh, the high priest, the Pharisees, they want to arrest him. So there's all these people thinking, will he come? Will Jesus come? But at the same time, he's a marked man. So you're like, well, he'd be a bit crazy to come. But there's just this anticipation. And then his own followers, you know, they've been warned that we're coming up to Jerusalem. So everything is focused on that. There's just this real anticipation and climax about what is going to happen in Jerusalem for the Passover. What can this show us about God then? I think it shows us that God's timing is perfect. I mean, the timing of this, all this had to be happening for the absolute kind of melting pot of what then leads to the decision to crucify Jesus. The stage is set, the Roman governor's in town. There's the energy and anticipation of Jesus' followers. It all helps precipitate the crisis about to come upon them. But it's also a reminder that we're at risk at interpreting events in our own way. You know, there were people there thinking, this is, this is over, you know, we're going to defeat the Roman superpower. This is all about nationalism. It's all about now. But it was all held within God's much bigger plan. So this is the moment that Jesus takes a stand. Earlier on in his ministry, we hear him saying, you know, heal someone and says, go, don't tell anyone. 
And there's this sense, you know, throughout his ministry, he's just going from town to town. He is preaching the kingdom of God. He is healing. But he is just doing it, you know, in a fairly quiet way. Um, but here the moment changes. I think back to when Rachel Maskell was interviewed a few weeks ago and she talked about Daniel and Esther moments. I'm going to keep coming back to this because I already mentioned it once. But anyway, um, and she talked about a Daniel moment when you've got to take a stand, when Daniel uh, stood up for what he believed in. This is like, this is the shift now. Jesus is standing up to be counted. He's going public in the most public way possible into the fiery furnace of a nationalist Jerusalem on his own difficult road of obedience. So let's turn to the message that that ride into Jerusalem brings. There is huge symbolism in what we see here. And much of it is visual rather than verbal. So I'm going to try and paint a picture of what's going on so we can pull out uh, some of all the different things that are going on. Because in this picture of Jesus coming up to Jerusalem on a donkey, he shows himself as the promised and prophesied Messiah. We know this, but the disciples didn't make the connection at the time. They were just caught up in the swirl of the events. So first of all, he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, all the other pilgrims, I hadn't really thought about this, but all the other pilgrims, and just bear in mind we've just mentioned there are a lot of people coming up, descending on Jerusalem. Let's think of when we go to something where there's loads of people and everyone's walking in together. All the pilgrims will have been walking. But Jesus, it was an intentional decision to be mounted and to be above everyone else. It sets him above everyone else, but it also fulfills Zechariah 9, verse 9, which we'll come back to later, where it says, See your king riding on a donkey. But it's also likely to have reminded the Jews of a time when King David chooses Solomon as his successor, and he seats him on his mule. Uh, it says in 1 Kings 1.33, he said, Take your Lord's servants with you and have Solomon, my son, mount my own mule and take him down to Gihon. So there's just a sense, this mounting on, on a donkey, or on, on a mule in this case, it's a reminder of kingship. The people put their cloaks down for him. They put them on, on the donkey as well for him to sit on, but then they're laying them down. That also harks back to Old Testament times when Jehu was anointed king by Elisha. This was in defiance of the existing king, and men spread their cloaks out for them. It says in 2 Kings 9.13, they quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. And let's not forget the palms. They're not mentioned in this particular version that I've read out, but obviously we call it Palm Sunday. In the other um, Gospels, it talks about the palms, uh, or the branches that they've brought down. They were used for Judas Maccabeus 200 years before Jesus, as he arrived into Jerusalem after conquering pagan armies that had oppressed Israel. So it's heavy with symbolism. He's on a donkey. There's palms being brought down. There's cloaks being laid out as he comes up into Jerusalem. Plenty of visual messages of kingship going on. And what about the verbal words? Well, the crowd says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, they're echoing Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, which would actually have been recited to all the pilgrims as they're coming up, but they would have said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You can you know, perhaps picture it in some pilgrimage sites 
we're not, you know, don't see them as much now in this country, but in other places you can imagine pilgrims coming up. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he. It was just said in general as the pilgrims came up. But here it says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In John it says the king of Israel. In Matthew it's the son of David. This is an extraordinary claim. This man is coming up. He's got his band of followers, his disciples. But they're saying the king, the king of Israel. An extraordinary thing to say. And in the other three Gospels, but not in the one that we've read, it's prefixed by Hosanna, which, of course, uh, we sing, uh, particularly the children's songs you sing at this uh, around Easter. Hosanna, which is an interesting word not used elsewhere in the New Testament. And it kind of means help or save. Now, I've got a couple of references here of where, it, where the Hebrew word is used. Um, when, when individual people have gone to a king. So in 2 Samuel 14, 4, when the woman from Tekoa went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honor, and she said, help me, your majesty, help me, Hosanna, coming from Hosanna. And then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried to him, help me, my Lord, my God. Hosanna, a king who saves and rescues. Our king who saves and rescues. They're calling it because they don't see the bigger picture. They're just, it's amazing that they use that word, it is inspired by God, surely. Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And that is entirely the truth and what is happening, even though they don't see it. Isn't it incredible the way that God uses and works through them? The other thing that we see in Luke 19, verse 38, is it talks about, so blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What does that make us remember? Peace and glory in the highest. Yes, thank you. The angels. So you've got this bookend a little bit with Luke. At the beginning, the angels, when Jesus is born, say, peace on earth and glory in the highest. Now we've got peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I've not got time to unpack why it's peace in heaven, but Jesus represents peace. And look at Jesus' message. He says that if the Jewish priests forbid the people to sing out, the rocks are going to cry out. Again, a pretty extraordinary thing to say. But if you compare to a couple of verses in the Old Testament, there is that sense of nature crying out in praise, nature recognizing God. So in Isaiah 55, verse 12, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. You're thinking of those songs, aren't you? <laughs> um, and the stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. That's a cry out against Babylon. What's the message? That the whole of nature yearns for the coming of the Messiah, the one who will save and rescue, ultimate eternal salvation. I mean, don't we see it today? The world that is creaking, it feels like, uh, with the way it's been uh, used and abused. But the whole of nature cries out, and that's why Jesus says what he says. Even if you make the people shut up, the rocks themselves will cry out. There's just such a sense of just, th th there's no other way for this to happen. It is going to be, this is God's purpose. And whatever happens, 
Jesus is the Messiah and nature sees it. So you can just, I just want you to close your eyes for a minute and just picture it afresh. I was going to put a picture up, but then it just, you know, we've all got different ones. I've been fighting with Jesus Christ Superstar through the week. So let's just push all the different visions that we've seen and let's just imagine it. Jesus coming up to Jerusalem. He's not in Jerusalem yet. He's coming up to it on a donkey. The cloaks are being put down and people are calling, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, this king who's going to help, who's going to save, who's going to rescue. And when the priests say, tell them to be quiet, they just say, Jesus says, there's no point. The rocks themselves will cry out. So there's just an incredible message going on here. What can we learn from the message that this image brings? You can open your eyes. Well, the Jews were awaiting a Messiah. There were prophecies. And they may have seemed pretty obscure uh, when they looked at that and tried to imagine what this Messiah would be like. But one by one, over the next few days, Jesus is going to fulfill every single one of them. What that says to me is that God keeps his promises however difficult they may have seemed. Nature knew it, but we don't always see it. Jerusalem and the Pharisees missed it entirely and instead opposed the very one who had come to save them. They opposed, they misunderstood completely and rejected him. Jesus' followers misunderstood it, but the rocks cry out and his purpose prevails even when we don't quite get what's going on or completely reject it. And of course, there is forgiveness and redemption for all. Whether you misunderstand it or you've missed it but you return to him, there is forgiveness for all. So finally, we come to the man. This is the pivotal moment in Jesus' life. The time that he starts something that will now accelerate to a terrifying conclusion on the cross. He walks forward in obedience to the Father and shows who he really is. Our King, our Messiah, the chosen and promised one. But let's look closely at the example he sets on how to do that. Let's go back to that donkey. So Zechariah 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was known as a messianic oracle. Everyone knew this was about the Messiah coming. Later on it talks about him coming to establish universal peace, worldwide dominion. This is the Messiah. This is the promised and chosen one. But it's a triumph received, not won. This is a kingship established not through violence, but by submitting to the will of his enemies. It says they're righteous and victorious, but other versions say righteous and having salvation, or just and able to save, which I think you know, is a much more helpful translation for this particular verse. 
your king comes to you just and able to save. Jesus is the only one, will, only be the, will always be the only one who is able to save. And he is saved by submitting to the will of his enemies. And death is not won by him, but by the power of God the Father. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? And when that, the Zechariah then talks about war horses and all that sort of stuff, so there's a real um, comparison to be said that they were probably expect, although they've got this verse, they'll have been expecting a king to come on his horses. And, but Jesus comes on a donkey, our humble king. But when he asks the disciples to go and get the donkey, it's interesting, isn't it? He just says, go and find this colt. And if they say, you know, why are you taking, just coming and getting a colt, the Lord needs it. And there's a, and a, a lovely, quiet authority there, the authority of a king. If, you know, if the queen asked us for something, I'm sure we would just give it to her and try and find out afterwards why on earth she wanted it. Uh, you know, they just, there's no questioning, there's just, the Lord needs it. And it's interesting how Luke even emphasizes it. He really tells it, like the disciples went, and yes, Jesus had said, if they ask you, uh, just say the Lord needs it. So the disciples went, and they do ask him, why are you taking the cult? You know, okay, we get it, the Lord needs it. So there's just a real quiet authority that comes from a king. But the great king, the son of David, does not ride into Jerusalem on a war horse. No, he chooses a humble donkey because he is our servant king. He shows us a different kind of leadership. His way is a quiet, assured authority, but without all the trappings of wealth and show of power. Jesus shows us another way, a way in which all future leadership will be measured. Just take the secular business book, Good to Great, from Good to Great by Jim Collins. Uh, it looks at what makes a good company a really great company. Do you know what the common trait that differentiates good companies from great companies is? It's a leader with humility. They call them a level five leader. They have an indomitable will or, you know, real focus. But personal humility. That's a secular business book that just shows the impact of what Jesus shows us. And that leader doesn't have employees or scared subjects. He has followers who are rewarded for their faithfulness, as Jesus teaches just before in the parable of the talents. Um, I read an excellent exegesis of this parable recently through Middle Eastern eyes rather than our Western capitalist ones. Um, and it showed that focus on faithfulness in spite of opposition against your leader being faithful, even when he's gone away and not yet return to reclaim the true kingdom. We're called to be faithful until our king returns to reclaim his true kingdom. This is our path, to follow him. Where we lead, in our work, in our homes, in our families, in our church, to accept that responsibility, that authority, with humility and see the last become first. Jesus gently corrects us when we get things skewed, like the mother of John and James did when she asks if her sons can sit by his throne on the left and right-hand side. Matthew 20, verse 25 to 28 says, Jesus called them together and said, 
You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't know about you, but some of the stuff I read in the news just, just brings you up that, that first sentence. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Now, we're not to believe everything we read in the newspapers, but uh, Jesus sets it out there in black and white. That's not what we're to do if we lead, to be exercising authority over in that way, but to serve So this is our God, the servant king. He's walking in obedience towards the cross as being predestined for him. May we too take up our cross and follow him. He doesn't promise it will be easy. Just four days after this moment of fame and, and the joy of everyone uh, shouting out as he comes up into Jerusalem, just four days later he will be betrayed and denied. I believe there's much we can learn from our Lord's passion. There's a verse actually about the commotion that's being caused as everyone comes in. Because sometimes you think of, and, this, and, and some TV versions don't help on this, like almost like it's all happening in Jerusalem already. This is Jesus coming up to Jerusalem as this is happening. And it says in Matthew 21, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. It's all adding into these tensions, this prophet from Galilee and what's going on. Uh, and then um, in, I think it's John, the Pharisees say, the whole world's gone after him. So there's all this, you know, you can just picture the scene, the commotion, the excitement. But four days later, denied, betrayed, and the next day after that, crucified. And he knew that, of course. It's not like he for a minute forgot about it and just enjoyed the ride. You know, he, he's there in that moment. This is his big moment. And he knows what he's facing. So let's praise God for his provision, his perfect timing. He is our promise keeper. And let's worship Jesus, our servant king, who led the way, showed us how to serve, how to walk in obedience and be all that he's planned for us to be. If the band would like to come up. I was reflecting on our own lives and those key moments when we need to convey a particular message. Perhaps stand up for something we believe in, or face a difficult conversation. In a staff meeting recently, we watched a video on crucial conversations. Uh, they are defined as when the stakes are high, opinions vary, and emotions run strong. And actually, in those moments, how we react can have a profound impact Sometimes on the rest of our lives. These are not moments you have, you know, every week. These are, there's just some crucial moments in our lives where the stakes are really high 
there's a difference of opinion, and emotions are running strong. And guess what? In those moments, we often perform at our worst. For the very reason that the emotions are running strong, and the stakes are high, and there's disagreements, and it just brings out the worst in us, or we just feel like we can't um, approach that moment in the most measured way. I was reflecting back on that, and I look at Jesus. In this key moment of universal impact, we see Jesus. The stakes couldn't be higher. There's a real difference of opinion with what's going on with everyone who is in Jerusalem. And the emotions are incredibly high. But Jesus is quietly assured. He steps up to what is required with peace in his heart and humility. And even in this massive moment for him, he's not thinking of himself and what he's about to face. Instead, he looks on Jerusalem. That passage right at the end of what we read. He looks on Jerusalem and he weeps. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. This procession's going on, but Jesus weeping and says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. He's not thinking of himself. He's thinking of others. What an incredible example. What an inspiration. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your incredible example. Lord God, would you inspire us afresh this morning? Lord God, where we have a crucial moment ahead of us, where we are leading in different areas of our lives, Lord God, would we look to you? Teach us, Lord, how to stand up and be counted with a quiet assurance in our heart that comes when we trust in you. We thank you for the peace that you give us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to think less of ourselves. Lord, teach us to be humble. Lord, we just marvel that even in that moment where the stakes couldn't have been higher, as you walked up to Jerusalem, mounted that donkey, and the crowds were around you, you did not think of yourself and what you were facing but your heart was for Jerusalem and what they were missing. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would touch us afresh this morning. And Lord God, we thank you that it's all about